Uh, this morning we'll pick back up on our path through the, uh, the 52 uh, favorite chapters of this class. We're going to be in Acts chapter number 2 this morning. We, we left off a couple of weeks ago. We were in John chapter 14 uh, where Jesus was having the Last Supper with his disciples. And if you recall, one of the promises he made at that time was that whenever he left, he would not leave them comfortless. And that word comfortless, it means to be orphaned. He said, whenever I leave, I'm going to be going away. And whenever I leave, uh, I'm not going to leave you orphaned. I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I will send a comforter to you. And, and so in Acts chapter 2, which is where we'll be this morning, if you want to turn to Acts chapter number 2, what we find here is the empowering of the Spirit um, into the church uh, here in Acts chapter number 2. Uh, the key verse we have here is in Acts chapter 2, verse number 4. The Bible says, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And uh, it's always helpful, especially when you're going into the book of Acts, to remind yourself that um, the book of Acts, uh, what was, it, what, its intention um, was, uh, it was actually written by Luke, the physician who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. So he's one of the, uh, as far as the number of uh, words written, he's, I think he's number two in all the New Testament, or number three, I apologize, number three in all the New Testament of words that were written in the Bible was Luke. And Luke was writing this, uh, this he, uh, well, he says here in verse number one of chapter one, uh, the former treaty have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And so this is the, the telling of what happened in the early church um, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's a couple of things to be aware of. Uh, first of all, this is a book that you find um, some transitions. Many people call the, a book of Acts a transitional book. And you see that in Acts chapter 2 where we see the Holy Spirit coming. That's a transition that's different than the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon people and leave. If you remember the story of Samson, Samson had the Spirit of God upon him, but as you know the story of Samson, he was disobedient, and the Bible says that uh, he had the, the, the uh, relationship with Delilah, and that eventually he thought he was going to jump up and break off the bands and fight off the Philistines, but the Bible says he didn't realize the Spirit of God had departed from him. So in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon men and leave men. But we see a transition happening here in Acts chapter number 2, a very important transition. And that is that the Holy Spirit no longer comes and goes, but the Holy Spirit is there to abide with us. To abide with us through our entire life. And so that's what we see happening here in Acts chapter number 2. So there's, it's a transitional book. It's also something, once again, to be cautious of. Certainly all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for instruction. All that is correct, but... I would say, when dealing with the book of Acts specifically, be very cautious of building all your doctrine off of maybe one verse in the, in the book of Acts. Because once again, the book of Acts is a transitional book. Things are happening in this unique period of time that are not repeated going forward. They were for a moment in time as God, was, as God providentially was working in the lives of men. There was a moment where things changed, but that moment has passed. and Now things are no longer changing all the time. And so it's important whenever you read the, the, the book of Acts that... You don't build um, all of your doctrine off of maybe only one verse in the book of Acts because you're, you're, you're opening up the risk of not properly dividing the word of God. So just a couple of things to be, keep in mind. It's a transition book. And just be aware of, um, and there are many Christians that do it. They will build all their, uh, their, all their doctrine for their faith and belief off just a couple of scriptures out of the book of Acts. And they can get way off of what the Bible is teaching in its context. So just a couple of things to be aware of. So what's happening here in chapter number 2? It is the day of Pentecost, the Bible says, here in chapter 2, verse number 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. 
So let's talk about Pentecost and what that is. The word Pentecost, it means 50th. And in Leviticus chapter 23, there was some instruction given to the children of, uh, the, the children of Israel that when they came into the promised land, there were certain feasts and festivals and special days they were to observe to remind them of what God had done for them. And the first one you see in Leviticus chapter 23 is the Passover. That day whenever uh, all the people in Egypt sacrificed a lamb and they put the blood on the doorpost and the, and the angel passed over those that had the blood. And those that did not have the blood, their firstborn was killed. And so there was this remembrance, keep the Passover. And that was a special meal where they, they ate a, a lamb. It had to be a, a one-year-old without spot or blemish. They had to observe it for seven days to make sure it didn't have any limps or ailments. And then when they cooked it, they had to cook it with special herbs and and, and, uh, and bitter herbs, the Bible says. And then the, and then the bread they had had to be unleavened bread. It didn't rise. It didn't have yeast in it. It was like a cracker or something of that nature. So it was a special meal to remind them of the Passover. But that wasn't the only special day. There was also the, the first fruits, the festival of first fruits. And this is where when they would go out and harvest, they would just take the grain. The Bible says that they were to take the grain and they were to give it to the priest and they wouldn't process it they wouldn't make anything with it they would just take the raw grain and they would just wave it before the lord and that was the feast of first fruits and then 50 days after that they would have the feast of pentecost and this was a feast where they would take not just raw grain but they would actually take the the flour the wheat and they would bake bread they would make two loaves of bread and they would give it to the priest. You can read this in Leviticus chapter number 23. And they take two loaves of bread, the priest, and he would wave the loaves of bread before the Lord. And these were special feasts that were kept in the Old Testament. And what you find is that Jesus fulfilled all of these feasts. When it comes to the Passover, he was the Lamb of God that was sacrificed. His blood was shed, and it was placed upon the hearts of men so that we could be saved, so that we, the, 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 uh, the angel could pass over us and we could be spared. But not just that, but Jesus is also the first fruits. The Bible even says, Paul says that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. And the, and the, the first fruits is, a, is a, a reminder or fulfillment of prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then you see this, uh, this festival or this special Sabbath day of Pentecost. Now, the Jews, even, um, even to this day, they will celebrate this day. But for them, it is a day remembering the giving of the law. The giving of the law. So whenever, they, whenever you would talk to a Jew back in Bible times, and you were talking about Pentecost, in their mind, they would immediately think, oh, that's our festival. We would, we would celebrate uh, God giving us his word. And that it's represented with bread. Bread is in the Bible is a picture of the Bible. There's two loaves of bread. There are two testaments, the Old Testament, the New Testament. And so for them, Pentecost is a, a celebration of God giving us his law. But Jesus didn't just give us his law. He fulfilled the law. And so what you see is Leviticus chapter number 23 outlines these three festivals, the Passover, the first fruits and Pentecost. And we see Jesus Christ fulfilling each one of these. The Passover, the first fruits and then Pentecost with Jesus not giving us the law, but fulfilling the law. It's also, I think, maybe interesting to think about uh, Pentecost being the day where the church was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what you find is in the book of Acts, it's a transitionary book. So what you find in Acts chapter number two is the empowering, the filling of those Jews that were gathered there in Jerusalem. It was for the Jews. And then if you read forward a few chapters, you read about a man named Cornelius. And once again, if you read the story of Cornelius, you see the Holy Spirit filling the Gentiles. And so you see two loaves of bread being pictured in this festival, uh, one picturing the Jews and one picturing the Gentiles. And so you see all these uh, fulfilled uh, prophecies that are outlined here in A uh, Acts chapter number 2. But we see that, uh, that, that this is the day of Pentecost. And I would say this is one of these topics where good Christian people can 
disagree, and it, and it doesn't mean that we have to not fellowship. It doesn't mean that one person is not saved. But there are some people that would say that Acts chapter 2 is, uh, is the starting of the church. And, 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 I, and I think there are people that can find verses in the Bible that could support their, that claim. And I wouldn't argue with somebody over if they believe the church was started on Acts chapter 2. I personally believe, and this is my personal opinion, that the church was actually founded during the ministry of Jesus Christ. For, for a couple of reasons, um, that I, that I, and once again, good Christians can disagree about this. It doesn't mean that we can't get along or be friendly or we have to separate or something of that nature. But uh, for a couple of reasons, I think, first of all, um, I think that uh, it, uh, it lessens the life in the ministry of Jesus Christ. If we are to say that uh, the church was not started when he was here, that he left, and then the church started after he left, I think it diminishes the ministry of Jesus Christ. When you think about what a church is, the word church, it means it's a Greek word, ekklesia, and it means to be called out or to be a distinct group. That's what a church is. What did Jesus do as he went around Galilee and around uh, Judea? He called out men to follow him, didn't he? He said, James and John, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Isn't that what he said? He came to Matthew, the tax collector, and said, follow me. He was calling out people to follow. That's exactly what a church is, a called out group of people. If you look in a Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 10, well, let's just turn there, uh, Matthew chapter 10. If you were to ask me, you know, brother, not, not that, not that, you know, I, not that you need to put a whole lot of confidence in what I believe, but if you were to ask me, where do you think the church started? I would say Matthew chapter 10 is where I believe the church started. Matthew chapter 10, if you look at it here, what you find is Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's, he's giving them a commission. He's telling them to go out two by two and to preach uh, the gospel to go out and to heal people um, it, and so you see here uh, Matthew chapter 10 verse 1 and when he had called unto him his 12 disciples once again what is a church it's a Greek word ecclesia that means a called out group of people a distinct group of people and it says when he had called unto him his 12 disciples he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of diseases now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So you see a listing of, I would say, the first twelve members of this church. Uh, and then if you continue to read Matthew chapter 10, you see this commission that Jesus gives them to go out and to share the message, and that's what the church is supposed to be doing. So, once again, if you were to ask me, you know, where do you think the church started, I would say Matthew chapter 10. I think it fulfills all the conditions of, these are people that were baptized in John the Baptist's ministry, so they were prepared by John the Baptist. They then followed Jesus, he called them unto himself, and now he gives them a commission to go out and spread the gospel. But not just because... Uh, because I think it diminishes the, G the ministry of Jesus if you, if you think it, if it was formed in Acts chapter 2. But also, I think that what Jesus told his disciples when he said, I will build my church. Amen. He didn't tell Peter, hey, Peter, you're going to go build my church. He said, I will build my church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. It belongs to him. It doesn't belong to Peter. It doesn't belong to John the Baptist. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And so once again, I think for that reason, I feel like the church was started before Acts chapter number two. And then finally, and this is once again, just a personal thing. Uh, many people that hold to the belief that the church started in Acts chapter number two, um, it's very easy to go down a slippery slope and now Peter becomes your pope. And now the church is completely corrupted and you have all kinds of idolatry and paganism going on. So it's a, uh, so anyway, for those reasons, I believe that the, the Acts chapter two is not the forming of the church. 
but the empowering of the church. And there's a distinction there. So uh, that, like I said, if you just if you have hold other beliefs on that topic, that's okay. I'm not upset. You, I, I may change my mind one day. But up to this point, that's what I believe the Bible teaches. So uh, that's uh, that's what I wanted to share. So um, so we see here the day of Pentecost in, in uh, ch- chapter two, verse one. But then in verses two through thirteen, we see the church worshiping the Lord. It goes on to say here in verse number two, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting and there appeared unto them cloven tongues as a fire and it sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance and there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews devout men out of every nation under heaven now this, what now when this was noised abroad the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language and they were all amazed and marveled saying one unto another behold are not all these which speak Galileans, and how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we are born? And then it lists a group of, of people that are for, from all across the known world at that time. And on the handout that I gave you this morning, if you have one, there's a little map there that shows you all the different regions where people, that was their hometown, but they had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, um, and they were staying there through the, through the celebration of Pentecost, and they all came to Jerusalem. These were Jews or they were proselytes, people that they were maybe a Gentile, but they had converted to Judaism. And so they were gathered together at the temple, and you see that they were all together. And the Bible says that, that the Spirit came, and it filled them here in chapter 2. And it filled them just as Jesus had promised in John chapter 14. Isn't that what John, John said, uh, Jesus said in John chapter 14? He said, I will not leave you comfortless. And this is exactly what happens in Acts chapter number 2. He sends the comforter. He sends the Holy Spirit to empower them. But not just as Jesus had promised, the Spirit came, but also as Jeremiah had prophesied. If you look in Jeremiah chapter 31, and we've looked at this scripture many times in class as we've started here several years ago going through the Bible. And what you find in Jeremiah chapter 31 is this initial prophecy of a new covenant that God would make with his people. And part of that covenant was that he would dwell within them. The Holy Spirit would no longer just come upon men for a brief time and then leave them, but God would dwell with his people. He'd dwell within them, and the Bible says that they will be his people, and those people, um, they will be his God. But that's in Jeremiah chapter 31. Let's look at Jeremiah 31, chapter 31, verse number 31. The Bible says, Behold, the days will come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant. And that's what's happening here. Whenever the church was established, it was a new covenant. It wasn't like keeping a covenant of the law where you had to do all these different rituals and, have, and obey all these different laws because the, what Paul, Paul said was it was imperfect. It couldn't save you. Keeping, keeping the law could not save you. Being a good person could not save you. Being religious could not save you. It was an imperfect covenant. So there was a new covenant here. It says that he will make with the house of Israel and with the house, house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And so you see this promise or this prophecy from Jeremiah that this day would come. And, and we probably don't talk about it enough. We don't think about it enough. We don't teach about it enough. We, we certainly don't meditate or dwell upon it enough, but that God has given you his spirit. That God is inside of each and every one of us. If you're a child of God, if you're saved here this morning, and I, that's... That's, that's, a, that's, a, a, that's an amazing truth that the Bible gives us, that God resides within each one of us. That God's spirit 
has, has sealed us, the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, has sealed us under the day of redemption. The fact that I can have confidence, that I can know that I'm going to heaven, and you can know that you're going to heaven. You can know that. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, These things have I written unto you that believe, in the name, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. You can know that you can have eternal life. And how can I know that? Because there have been some promises given to us that the Holy Spirit has sealed us, that he will abide with us, that he will not, that he will not leave us, and that we can have that confidence that the Holy Spirit is within us. And so we see this prophecy from Jeremiah that's fulfilled, and this promise from Jesus that's fulfilled. But also we see here in, verse, in, in chapter 1, verse number 5, if you go back one chapter, we see what's happening. What's going on here in chapter number 2? Well, John the Baptist said that the Holy Spirit would baptize them in fire. The Bible says here in chapter 1, verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And so this is the fulfillment of Jesus saying that you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit baptized in fire. Now, what's that word baptized mean? Why is it important for people to be baptized? What does that word baptized mean? Well, if you look it up, once again, that Greek word, it means to submerge or to plunge under, but it also means to be identified with. So, you know, for example, uh, you know, if, if you were to jump into the baptistry and submerge, you are, you are now within the confines of that water. You are identified within that water. And so that word baptized, it means to be submerged, to be dipped under, but it also means to be identified with. And water baptism is a public declaration that I am identifying with Jesus Christ. That's what it means. And, and we're blessed. You live in America, and getting baptized in America is not, in mo most of the time, unless you're in some very maybe extreme part of the country, uh, it's, not anything, it's not anything that's looked down upon. It's not anything that's, you don't have to, your family's not going to forsake you if, you if they hear you got baptized. But if you were a Jew... Back in Acts chapter number 2, and you were to identify with Christ, if you were to be baptized publicly, to be buried into his likeness of death and then raised again to walk in newness of life, if you were to do that, you would lose your family. They would turn their back on you, you'd lose your job, you'd lose your livelihood, you had to forsake everything to identify with Jesus Christ. And how blessed are we, how blessed are we that we can worship God openly, that many of us were raised in church by our family. That our, that our families have been helped and strengthened through our faith in Christ. But back in Acts chapter number 2, if you were to get baptized, you would lose all your family connections, all your support, your livelihood. And that's why you see, especially in the early church, the Bible says that they sold all their possessions and had everything in common. Because think about it, they couldn't go work a job anymore. Their family forsook them. They got fired. Everything was taken away. And so they had to sell all their possessions to support one another, to give out of a heart of charity and love. And so you find in the early church that this, these believers that were ostracized by their community have to sell all their possessions and live together communally. Uh, not in, And look, I've heard some crazy preaching on this where people are like, that's the way the church should be. We should have any private possession. Everything should be sold. Well, hold on. Let's Once again, that's why I caution people. Don't build all your doctrine off of one or two scripture, scripture out of the book of Acts. Make sure that you're looking at it in context and maybe know historically what happened. If you, if you look at church history, this is exactly what happened. You find this, this um, ostracized, uh, everyone's ostracized, it gets baptized. They're persecuted, they're in Jerusalem. In some of the epistles that Paul wrote, he actually commended Gentiles and other Jews for sending money to Jerusalem to support these people because they couldn't support themselves. And eventually through the persecution, all of them had to disperse out of Jerusalem and the church was spread abroad. And so this is all part of God's providential plan 
But what you find is these people had to identify. They had to be baptized publicly as a, as a, as, as a, as a Christian. And I would also say, what did they have to repent of? What we're going to see here shortly is that Peter preaches a message and tells them to repent and, be, and to be baptized for the remission of sins. What did they have to repent of? Uh, Peter was preaching to them here in Acts chapter number 2, and he wasn't telling them to repent of their, uh, of their uh, um, adultery. He wasn't telling them to repent of their drunkenness. He wasn't telling them to repent of their whatever, fill in the blank, whatever sin he said. He was telling them to repent of their religion. And that's what most people need to repent of. Certainly, certainly you should not continue to live in sin, but what keeps people lost is I think they can save themselves. People are going to end up in hell because they think they can be good enough to get to heaven on their own. And so Peter was saying, repent of that belief. That will send you to hell. You can't be good enough to go to heaven. The only thing that will get you to heaven is to put your faith in Jesus Christ and, and through your hope and, and God's mercy, you can be saved. And so Peter was preaching to them to repent and to be baptized. In, in verse number four, we find that they are filled with the Spirit. The Bible says, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were filled. Now, whenever we get baptized in a church, whenever you get baptized in a church, you go up there and you get into the water and you're to be submerged. Um, this is what the Bible teaches. The early church, all the baptism was being completely submerged. They didn't sprinkle people in the Bible. That was nowhere in the Bible. You can't find that in the Bible anywhere. People were completely submerged when they were baptized. And whenever you got baptized, you are now joining the body of Christ. And so whenever you're baptized, you're saying, I belong to the body. That's what baptism is. You're identifying with Christ. I'm baptized into his death, raised to walk in new. I'm identifying in the body of Christ, which is the church. That's what being baptized is. But what's being filled with the Holy Spirit, what's that mean? What that means is not that I am part of the body, but it means my body now belongs to the Spirit. And those are completely different things. And it's important to know the difference. A lot of people get confused about what is the filling of the Holy Spirit. They think it's some kind of, you know, you got to pray through, and then you kind of, you know, some, you know all, all sorts of beliefs about that. But this is simply what the, when the Bible says being filled with the Spirit, what it means is, is that now my body is so filled with the Holy Spirit that it's in control, not me. That my body belongs to the Spirit. It doesn't belong to me anymore. That's what being filled with the Spirit means. And so we find in verse number four that they were filled. What they were saying was, yes, I'm part of the body. I'm part of the body. I was baptized. I got baptized in the water. I'm part of the, the body of Christ. But now my body belongs to the Spirit. This doesn't belong to me anymore. And so they were baptized. They were filled with the Spirit. We see in verses 5 through 13 that the Spirit began to speak to these people. The Spirit spoke to them. And the Bible talks about tongues. And let's talk about what this means for a moment. In verse number, uh, in verse number 4, it says they began to speak with other tongues. And then verse number 7, and they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Behold, are all these which speak Galileans, and how, and how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. So what's it talking about when it says speaking in tongues? It's talking about these men that were, a, they spoke a different language. They were able to communicate with other people. And when they communicated with other people, the other people could hear it in their native tongue, in a known language. So for example, let's say that I, I could only speak Spanish. And I was up here and I was teaching. And, all, and none of you could speak Spanish. You could only speak English. The gift of tongues would be that between the words coming out of my mouth and you being able to hear them within your ears, the Holy Spirit transforms that language from being Spanish that was spoken to being English that was heard. 
But it's not talking about some unknown heavenly language that no one can know. And it sounds like, you know, somebody's trying to start a chainsaw whenever they're speaking in that language. That's not what tongues is in the Bible. It was a known language. The men said we could hear it in our own ears. We could hear it in our own language. It was a known thing. It wasn't some kind of unknown heavenly language uh, that, that God gives special gifting for. That's not the point. What, well, then what was the point? There were several points for why this happened. The first would be this was a, this was a, uh, a redemption of the judgment of, of the Tower of Babel. Whenever, most of us growing up in church, when we think about the fall of man, we, we think of one singular event, which is the Garden of Eden, when uh, Eve ate of the apple and then gave it to her, her husband, Adam, and he ate of it, and that was the fall of mankind, and that's 100% correct. But that's not the only fall that mankind had. If you, if you continue to read there in the early book of Genesis, you find that there was a day whenever the, the Bible says that men's hearts were, their imaginations were on evil continually. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But God judged mankind again a second time whenever Noah came and the flood wiped off the earth and God started over again. But that wasn't the last time that mankind fell. The third one you continue to read was the Tower of Babel. All these people, and think about it, just think about it, it makes sense. Uh, everyone that was alive after the flood knew what happened. And they probably all thought to themselves, man, we don't want to be put in that situation again, so let's build a tower. And we're going to build it all the way to the heavens, so if God floods, sends the floods again, we can climb up high enough and get away from it. And that's what was happening in this moment, the Tower of Babel. All these people came together and said, we're not going to let God do that again. And we're going to take matters into our own hands. And we're going to build this tower. And God looked down and judged them. And what happened to the Tower of Babel? He divided men by language. Confusion. Every man was splintered and broken and divided. And it was a judgment of God upon mankind for their continued disobedience. But what you see in the uh, book of Acts chapter 2 is God's restoration of that judgment. That where, where man's disobedience brought division, the Holy Spirit brings unity. It brings people back together again. What does the Bible say about whenever we're in the body of Christ? We're all of the same blood. There's neither Greek nor Jew, Gentile. All those are gone away. We are all in one body together, and, and, and unity has been brought. And that's not the only reason that we see this happening um, in, this, in this passage. Not just because of the judgment of the Tower of Babel, but also it was to re reveal God's plan for the world. Whenever you read this list, it says that all these people from all around the world were gathered together. Isn't that what the Bible said? The, the entire known world. I've even heard people preaching. I, it, I, I, could, I, um, I wouldn't disagree that, you know, some people say, well, whenever, whenever the, the word of God is preached to every single person, that's when Jesus will return. And so we have to wait for that moment where the, the word of God can get to every single person. But the truth is God already gave the word to every single nation. It took place right here in this chapter. Um, and so uh, all these people, and so what was the message? God is saying this is not just for the Jews. This message of salvation is not just for one group of people. It's for all the world, for the entire world. Every language that could be spoken uh, could hear the gospel here in Acts chapter number 2. And so we see that uh, the whole, the, this day of Pentecost and this gift of tongues happened to reveal God's plan for the world. But also, and we've discussed this before in this class as well, it provided some credentials for the apostles as they were preaching and telling people this is the truth, this miraculous gift of tongues validated what they were saying was true. How else could that happen unless God was using these men to preach the gospel? And so once again, it's like it's the illustration of whenever you get pulled over by a police officer, they wear a badge to prove who they are. That's their credential, saying, hey, I am who I say that I am. I have, I have the authority given to me by the law of the land to enforce these rules, and you have to listen to my instruction. 
The same thing happened whenever God filled these men with the Holy Spirit and used the gift of tongues. It confirmed for the people watching, these men are different. These men have a power we've never seen before. We, we should listen to what they have to say. And so this gift of tongues was given to bear witness of the power of the Spirit. It goes on to say here uh, that, um, uh, it, well, we, we'll read here in verse number 8. And how here we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. And then it lists all these different uh, groups of people, different languages, where they were all coming from. Uh, and verse number 12, and they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meanest this? And others mocking, saying, these men are full of new wine. And so you see this, this, this comparison or this contrast is made many times in the Bible where being filled with the Holy Spirit is compared or being contrasted to being drunk. And, and what you find, I would say, uh, most of the time it's making a contrast, although sometimes there is a comparison. Um, but here we see a contrast saying, these men are filled with the Holy Spirit, so they could not be drunk. These are completely separate things. You're making, a, you're making a mistake confusing the two. And what's the difference? Well, if someone is drunk, uh, they're usually out of control. They don't have full control of their faculties. Their judgment's impaired. Their vision's impaired. There's a lot of things that, that happen that they lose the ability to control themselves fully. Whenever I was in college in Memphis, Tennessee one time, I went out to get a bite to eat uh, with a friend of mine named Chris Dallas. And we went to a barbecue place called Topps Barbecue. And we were waiting in line. It was one of these... One of these grungy hole in the wall, but those are the best ones, you know, those really run down looking barbecue plates, especially in Memphis. The dirtier it is, the better food's going to be. That's, I don't know why that is, that's the way it is, but we went in there and we were waiting in line and there was a, a, a couple standing in front of us and then my friend and I were waiting in line and there was another couple standing behind us and they didn't know each other, but somehow during, during us standing in line waiting to place our order, they, they, were, they were both, both of the men in this, uh, in this situation were both drunk. Um, and they begin to get into uh, begin to get into kind of a uh, you know a disagreement, and then one thing led to another. And I remember standing in between these two uh, drunk guys, and they begin to start swinging and throwing punches. And uh, and I, I I bucked up out of the way. I wasn't I wasn't trying to I was trying to eat a uh, a barbecue sandwich. I wasn't trying to go to the ER, so I bucked up out of the way. But my friend my friend Chris is trying to stand in between these two drunk guys, and they're just completely out of control. And that's what happens when people get drunk with wine; they get out of control. But can I tell you, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are in control. You are in control. God is controlling you. He's controlling your thoughts. He's controlling your words. He's controlling your actions. And he's using those things providentially to speak to the hearts of men. And so you see this, this um, contrast between being out of control. But Peter was saying, no, no, these men aren't out of control. They're completely under control. I would say the other contrast that we could maybe mention this morning between being drunk and being filled with the Spirit is when you get drunk, it only lasts for a little while. And most people that have experienced that, you kind of know it usually ends with a, a hard crash at the end and you have a hangover and all those kind of things happen, right? You are, you are you're receiving a short-term little, uh, little moment of, uh, of enjoyment, but there's a price that you have to pay the following morning. But can I tell you, being filled with the Holy Spirit is not temporary. You can have it every single day, all day long. And the reason we don't, it's our fault. It's not God's fault. If we're not filled with the Spirit, it's not because God hasn't promised, it's not because He hasn't provided, it's because we're not being obedient. And so being drunk is just a temporary high, but being filled with the Spirit is a permanent way to live every single day. So we see the Spirit spoke here in verses 5 through 13, but in verses 14 through 41, we see the church witnessing to the lost, and Peter here begins to preach to them, and he preaches a uh, a great message, but uh, verse number 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, 
ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And so this is this prophecy from Joel that was given in the Old Testament that one day God's spirit would dwell with us. It would not come and go. It would not rest upon men for a moment and then pass away. But that Holy Spirit will remain inside of us. And he begins to quote that portion of scripture there in Joel. And then it says here in verse uh, number 22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye have known, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined counsel and the foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And so Peter doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't try and make the people like him first. And try and manipulate him and get him to think, oh, Peter's such a great guy, I should just believe what he tells me. He didn't try and, he didn't try and use emotion to try and manipulate the people to get a, a false response. Peter told them exactly what they needed to hear, which was the truth. You have killed your own Messiah. He called it by name. He named the sin. We live in a day where no one wants to name the sin. But that's not what Paul did. That's not what John the Baptist did. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what Peter did. They named it. They said, you've killed your own Messiah. And whenever we do things according to the scripture, naming sin, you see the Holy Spirit can work and you see a response. So Peter explained what happened in verses 14 through 21. He said the spirit came. He said that spirit that had been promised by Jeremiah, that spirit that had been promised by Joel, what you're seeing before you, these miraculous uh, gift of tongues, these men that you're confused by, these men are fulfilling the prophecy that was given to us. And Peter explained what happened, which is the spirit came. He also explained how it, ca- how it happened. How did this happen? How did this moment happen where the spirit was filling these people and they were doing these miraculous things? How could this have been? Well, because Jesus was alive. Look at verse 22. We'll look at verses 22 through, um, 30, uh, 22 through 24. It says here, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. So first of all, Peter said, Hey, you, you remember all the stuff that Jesus did. You saw it with your own eyes. That itself alone should have proved to you who he, who he was. But you didn't believe him. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be beholden of it. So Peter says, this is why I can tell you this is the spirit, because first of all, Jesus is alive. The same man that you killed. Now, understand, who is he talking? He's talking to Jews in the temple in Jerusalem. They're literally, you know, a few minutes walk away from where Jesus' body was buried or where it should have been buried. What I'm saying is Peter is like, hey, if you don't believe me, go check out the tomb. You can see it for yourself. Jesus is not here. He's alive. He's risen again. 
And you know that it's true because of all the things he did in his life. All those miraculous wonders and signs that he did. The bringing people back to life after they, die, after they um, died. All the people that he had healed, given their sight back. Healed the lame man. All these miraculous things that he did. Peter was saying, the spirit is here. It's true because Jesus is who he said he was. And he's been resurrected. He's no longer here. This day that was prophesied by David in verses 25 through 31. For David speaketh concerning him. Talking about Jesus, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, and I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither will I suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy, and with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn an oath unto him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Peter is saying exactly what David said came to pass. That he did not leave his soul to face corruption, to be in hell. Now that word hell there, it means Hades, and it just means the land of the undead. That's what it means. And that's exactly what the prophecy you see here. This is in Psalms chapter 16. You can go see this prophecy that David made. And Peter, once again, is saying exactly what the Old Testament said came true. Through Joel, through David, through the actual life of Jesus Christ himself and all the miraculous things that you saw. But then also in 35 through, 33 through 35, he says, And the tomb is empty, therefore being by the right hand of God, exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended unto, his, unto the heavens, but he saith unto himself, The Lord saith unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make, until I make thy foes my footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter said, You crucified him and you killed him. He gave it to him exactly as the Bible says. This is the challenge for us in this day and age. We, we want people to like us. We want people to come into the church. We want them to hear the truth. And so we water it down. We don't want to offend. I've been trying to get my coworker from work to come, and I don't want to say something that will offend them, and they'll never, they'll never come. And so we want to, but the truth is this. God uses the plain, unvarnished truth to work in the hearts of men. It wasn't until I heard the truth that I could get saved. I, I believed a lot of lies. I believed a lot of wrong things, but it wasn't until the truth was revealed to me that I was like, okay, now I know what salvation is. And people need to hear the truth, that they're a sinner. And they're not just, oops, I made a mistake. They are, they are a rebel against God. And that's the truth. Every single one of us has had moments in our life where we have shaken our fist at God and said, no, I won't. And that's rebellion. And people need to hear the truth. And we will, if we will tell them the truth, people will respond. That's what happened here. In verse number 37, now when they heard this, when they heard the truth, that they had killed their own Messiah, when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And that's the question every lost person has to ask themselves. What am I going to do? I cannot go before God with my sin. And I can't get rid of my sin. It's always before me. It's always trailing me. And every day I commit new sins. And what shall we do? And Peter gives them the answer. Then Peter said unto them, Repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and your children, and to all of them that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And so we see that Peter explains to them why this happened. Why was their Messiah killed? Why did this moment happen? Because it provided salvation. It provided salvation for me, and it provided salvation for you. And Peter has a message for them, a message of repentance. Not a repent. These, are, these were religious people. They were in the temple that day. These were good religious people. And Peter said they needed to repent of their religion. Now, once again, people will take this verse and they will create a lot of false doctrines around you have to be baptized to be saved. Because it says here, and they'll say, well, this is what Peter said. Look, look what it says. And they'll, and they'll you know, say, you know, God didn't make any mistakes. And it's in black and white. And it says right here, Peter said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. You have to be baptized to be saved. And this here, again, is why it's important to not take things out of context. Amen. To not read into things that aren't there. If you would take your Bible and, and turn to Mark, uh, Mark chapter number 16. And I'll show you another another. Another example where maybe there can be confusion on is baptism. Now, don't misunderstand me. Baptism, um, baptism is important. Amen. It's the first act of obedience as a Christian. And if you have been saved and not baptized, you need to get that right with God. You're in disobedience to God. He wants you to be, uh, be publicly identified with him. And it's a lot easier for you than it was for the Jews. So if you're not baptized, you need to get that right. You need to repent and you need to get baptized. But being baptized will not save you. Mark chapter number 16 is another very uh, well-known verse that people will use incorrectly. It says here in Matthew chapter 16, verse number 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. See, there it is. There it is. You've got to be saved and baptized. You have to be saved and baptized. You've got to believe and be baptized. You can't just repent. You can't just believe. You can't just trust in faith. You have to also be baptized. But let's continue to read the rest of the verse. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall shall be. But he that believeth not shall be damned. So what's the imperative? If I if I uh, if I was talking to Brother George and he said, Hey, Brother John, can you give me a ride home? My wife's mad at me. And she won't she won't <laughs> me ride home with her. And I was like, Sure, Brother George, get your stuff and meet me in the car. I'll take you home. Yep. <laughs> anytime. Anytime. Now, what's the imperative? Now, if Brother George gets his stuff, that's great probably make it a little more efficient for you. You won't have to come back and get your stuff you left behind. But what's the imperative if you want to get home? you got to get in the car. That's the imperative thing. And, and on, on the other side of the coin, what if Brother George got all of his stuff, but he didn't get in the car? You're not getting home. So what does salvation require? What's the imperative? The imperative is belief. That's what he said here in Mark 16, 16. He said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Brother George, get your stuff and get in the car with me. But he that believeth not shall not. But he that believeth not shall be damned. But if you don't get in the car with me, you're not getting home. The imperative thing is: Do you believe? Not did you get baptized. That's the imperative. That's the important thing. Now, once again, don't misunderstand me. If you're not baptized, you need to get baptized. The Bible commands us to. Uh, it's a it's an act of righteousness that we should do as a Christian. But it will not save you. Yes, sir. You need to ride home. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
word oh. the next time. Absolutely. Yeah, inconvenienced by getting wet a little bit, but and but it's true. Even today, uh, as Brother George is mentioning, there there are places in the world today where if you confess that you're a Christian, you you are not just at risk of losing your family; you're at risk of being killed. They will kill you in certain places if you were a Muslim in certain areas, and you say, "I'm no longer a Muslim; I'm a Christian." They feel like it's their duty. It's it's an honor. It's a matter of honor for their family to kill you. Yeah, they will like oh, we will not we will not let you have our last name and call yourself a Christian. They'll kill those people. So what you see finally here is um, after the church witnessing to the lost, finally you see the church walking in the spirit. Um, here, let me get back. Acts chapter number two, the last part of this chapter, and it says verse number forty one. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, and as, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking of bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God, and having favor with all people. And the Lord added unto the church daily as should be saved. And so finally you see here the church is unified in verse number 44. They had all things in common. They were magnified in verse number 47. And then finally they were multiplied in verse number 7. And that's the correct path. It starts with being, first of all, unified. We want the church to grow. We want it to be magnified. We want it to be multiplied. It has to start with first being unified. If the church is not unified, it will not grow. It's not a healthy church. And then also I want you to notice here in verse number 47 that it says, Praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added unto the church daily such as should be saved. These people went to church every day, daily. Now, we go to church on Sundays and Wednesdays, but our spirit and our heart should be that every day should be church day. Every day, daily, fellowshipping with God, fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters, fellowshipping through prayer, fellowshipping through Bible reading. Daily, they were in the uh, Lord's house. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time you've given us. Thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this uh, this this opportunity to look at the early church and how they lived and, and some of the challenges, Lord, that we don't have to face. And we're blessed that we live in America today. And Lord, help us not to take that for granted. We do pray for the service to come, this special day focused on um, deaf awareness, that you would speak to hearts as visitors come, that you would, uh, that you would move in the, in the uh, audience, that you would fill our pastor with your Holy Spirit this morning. That, Lord, even this morning we could see, uh, Lord, the baptismal waters troubled again, that we could see souls saved as a result of the gospel being preached, the truth being proclaimed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.